text of our message this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Many of you know that on Fridays we have a men's luncheon here at our church. and We have a meal and a Bible study. We've been doing that for about three years. It's been a most uh, successful and uh, happy experience for us, I think. About three or four weeks ago, I did a kind of a special deal in there on this passage. We're studying through the Gospel of John, and I talked about the, um, the um, theme or the idea of death. Several of the guys there, just an overwhelming groundswell of guys, insisted that I, that I do that thing here on Sunday for you to hear. In fact, one of the men said, when you decide to do it on Sunday, uh, be sure and call me because I want to be sure and be there. Um, I want to try to um, try to do that today on John 14, beginning at verse one. I figure if those guys are willing to sit through it uh, once or twice, y'all can handle it once. I want to pick up a verse of scripture in John 13, and that's verse 36, and then go to 14, verse one. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare place for you. And if I go and prepare place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. In 1975, a man by the name of Raymond Moody wrote a book. This man is an MD. And he wrote this book in which he discussed or uh, recorded 150 cases of people who had experienced clinical death. These people had been revived or resuscitated and brought back from death and lived to tell about their experiences. It took him 12 years to write the book, a very a scholarly man, he began to write the book when he was a student at the University of Virginia, and later when he taught in the University of North Carolina, and then he completed the compilation, or the book, when he went back to study for the MD degree at the University of Virginia. And what he was seeking was to find some common elements in all of these experiences, some kind of common denominators that would give some credence to these stories and others that were just going around a lot in the late 60s and 70s. And he found to his amazement that there, were not just one, there was not just one common element, but there were many. He found that they all said that they experienced some strange sensations after death or near death, 
Some of these sensations were auditory, and some were not. They just saw them. Some of them were pleasant, and some were unpleasant. But there, in this phenomena, there were these strange sensations that they all experienced, they felt, they were aware of. Each of them said that they felt being pulled rapidly through some dark tunnel, some, some cave-like uh, structure or some valley, and there was a moment of darkness and then they were being pulled. They were conscious of being rapidly pulled through this dark tunnel out into an opening where they were able to see a beautiful pastoral scene of marvelous meadows and calm, palm, uh, calm ponds with ducks on them. And they experienced the most serene and calm peace that they had ever known before. Each one of them said that they knew that when they got beyond death's door, that they were separated from their physical body. They said that they entered into what they called their spiritual body. Their spiritual body lacked solidity, but it was not formless. It was not like some ghost or some great blob of something. It had a form or a shape. And they were able in this spiritual body, they said, to look back upon or down upon their physical body, and yet they were separate from it. And they were able to move around with great ease, effortlessly in this spiritual body, and they were able to pick up the thoughts of those who were left behind them, who were there with their physical body. Perhaps the most impressive common element was that when they got beyond death's door, they all encountered this unearthly being of light, brilliant light. So bright was this heavenly creature, this heavenly being, that they could hardly look upon him. He was effulgent. And yet he generated warmth of personality and he spoke to them. He expressed love to them. And he asked them questions like, are you ready to die? What have you done with your life? I might say parenthetically at this point that a friend of mine was visiting Columbus Avenue Baptist Church in Waco a few years ago. It was the first Sunday after the Baylor students got on campus. And so they were having this special kind of service and this man stood up to give a testimony. He was a father of a seven-year-old boy, my friend said. And this father told that during the summer, this boy of theirs, this child, had experienced clinical death. He had been pronounced dead and was revived or resuscitated. And this boy told his father that he could remember swinging in a swing. And this unearthly being, this heavenly light, so bright as the sun, he could hardly look upon it, stood there by his swing and told him, that he had a place for him, a, a place of pleasure and happiness where other children were, and he wanted him to come and play, but he realized that his parents would be grieving and would need him, and so he was going to let him go back to his physical body, and he would call him back some other time. Now each one of these people said that they encountered this heavenly light that had the shape of a, of a human being and this human being spoke to them and asked them questions. 
Each one of them said that these experiences were learning experiences. Some said that they were aware after they went beyond this door that they had not experienced love like they uh, should have. And when they got back, they began to be a more loving person, a better husband, a better parent. All of them said that their lives were never the same after these experiences had happened to them. And each one of them said that after he had gotten beyond death's door, he never was afraid of death again, nor did he dread death at all. Now there are many explanations for these kinds of uh, experiences, for these phenomena. Some doubters say that these are just wish-filled dreams, that dreams are really the movies of the subconscious mind, and these thoughts are so embedded in the mind that in the trauma of the near-death experience, the movies, the tapes started playing, and these wish-filled dreams occupied those moments. Some call them hallucinations or illusions. Some say that these are just psychological or neurological phenomenon and are to be laid aside as having no consequence whatsoever. But Moody in his book raises an important issue when he says, you know, if we understood more about death, it might make a difference in the way we live. For we can never really understand this life until we get a glimpse of what lies beyond it. I think that's what Jesus is doing in our text. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospel of John, you'll begin to find in that chronological order, beginning with chapter 11, that Jesus begins to make them aware of death, His death. And I am impressed when I read the 11th chapter of John and find Jesus saying to His disciples, I am glad that Lazarus did not get well. For your sakes, I am glad of his death because you're going to learn something about dying and about living because of his death. And He comes to this upper room experience and He begins to tell them. He cracks the door just a little bit so that they could get a glimpse of what lies beyond it. Now I'm aware this morning that we are not to worship our experiences or anybody else's. And one of the biggest mistakes or tragedies we make is that we normally, many of us, judge the Bible by our experiences. We have all of these experiences, then we go and judge the Bible by them. And we need to judge our experience by the Word of God. You don't judge the Bible by an experience, you judge the experience by the Bible. And yet there are some things about these common elements that, that relate to what I know about the biblical revelation. For example, when he talks about being drawn through this dark valley out into this beautiful pastoral scene, one thinks immediately of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And everywhere in that Psalm and others, there are these beautiful pictures of calm and tranquil waters and beautiful pastoral scenes. When one thinks about or hears from these experiences about being separated from his physical body and entering to the, the spiritual body, he immediately thinks of the experience of Jesus after his resurrection. 
For he had a new body, a spiritual body after that resurrection. He was not limited by time or space. He could just think where he wanted to be and he would be there. And yet this spiritual body that he possessed after the resurrection had form and identifying characteristics. As a matter of fact, he said, look at the nail prints in my hand and come put your hand in the, in the wound that the spear made. And one immediately thinks of that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, beginning in, in, in chapter 15, beginning in, 30, in verse 35. And listen what he says. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, don't be foolish, he said. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You don't get this spiritual body except by physical death. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. It has its own identity and characteristics. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. That is, the identity of a heavenly body and the earthly body are different and, and distinct and unique. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And when one hears that in this experience, these experiences that they encountered this heavenly light being, one immediately thinks or wants to identify that heavenly being with Jesus. For he said, I am the light of the world. And when he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was so effulgent, he was so bright in his glory that they could not look upon him. Just beneath this thin veil of flesh is the divine Shekinah of God. And when one hears that these experiences taught them marvelous lessons of love, he remembers that Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And when we discover that these people no longer had a fear of death and no longer dreaded it, one thinks of Philippians 1.21. Sounds like that, doesn't it? Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm in this marvelous strait, this pressure, this, this difficult decision I have to make. I have a desire to go to be with God in heaven and yet I have a desire to stay here on earth and I'm pulled between the two great desires. It's not a dread for me or a fear. One man said, when I die, I know where I'm going because I've already been there. I do not have a death wish, he said. I love it on earth and I want to stay here as long as God will allow me. But I no longer fear death, nor do I dread it. As a matter of fact, I am anxiously looking forward to it. 
And I think of C.S. Lewis, who in 1963, this great scholar, experienced something like this. And he wrote in his diary, he said, death would have been such an easy passage. I almost regret that I was called back. And he wrote his sister and said, death is a luxuriously easy passage and I resent the door of death being slammed in my face. Now what I want us to do this morning in, the, in this kind of thing is to try to put life and death in the proper perspective. For if one is to understand death, he has to understand life. And if one is to understand life, he is to understand death. How do you put life in the proper perspective? I mean, where did all of this come from, this universe? Is God really real? Or did all of this universe just, is, is, is really the result of the Big Bang, an explosion of a great mass of matter, and the fallout becomes the planets and the stars? And where did that greater mass of matter come from? Is there really a creator? And where did he come from? And did he really give us life? Edwin Conklin, the great scholar, used to, used to compare the probability of the universe being the result of a gigantic explosion of matter to the probability of, a, of an unabridged dictionary being produced by an explosion in a print shop. One man told about having a, a garden party and invited all of these guests to come and he had these beautiful Japanese lanterns hanging all over the patio to, break, to give light. And, one of the first guests to arrive was this agnostic. He couldn't put it all together. And he was just commenting on the beauty. He said, who hung your Japanese lanterns? And the host looked up in the starry heavens and he said, how do you think those stars got there? And the agnostic thought for a minute. He said, I don't know. I guess they just hung there themselves. And the host said, that's how my Japanese lanterns got there. Well, the Bible puts a perfect perspective on life. The Bible affirms life and connects it with God. The Bible says that God is the source of light and the sustainer of it. And that literally He is the fulfillment of life. I like that Ephesians passage that says in the J.B. Phillips translation, for God has allowed us to know the secret of His plan and it is this, he purposed long ago in his sovereign will that all human history should be consummated in Christ, that everything ex that exists in heaven and earth should find its perfection and fulfillment in him. You know what that means? It means that God is the source of every thing in creation. He's the source of life. He is the source of your life. And your life has its fulfillment only in Him so that the universe or history is not on some collision course. It's on a consummation direction to the feet of the Lord, to the feet of Christ. And one of the strangest, tragic paradoxes of our time is that man's so fearful that God is going to rob him of the joys of life or cramp his style has built these gigantic walls to keep God out and not knowing that God is his fulfillment in life. 
His life is not fulfilled unless it's in Him. So what is a proper perspective of life? Life is affirmed by the Bible and the Bible says that God is the source of it and its fulfillment. What about death? How does it strike you this morning to think of death as another birth? Now I know you've got all kinds of words and titles for death. He's the murderer. He's a grim reaper. Job 18 says that he's a terror. Death is a terror. His tents are full of terror. He's the last enemy. We have all of these names for death. But the Bible likes to describe death as another birth. Just another step in the process, the great process of becoming Now when you and I were first conceived, we were two cells in the body of our mother. And there in that womb in the body of our mother, we begin to develop capacities. We developed there, as a matter of fact, if you believe uh, Psalm 139, if you believe the psalmist, he says in Psalm 139, God did form our inward parts and in our mother's womb he wove us. So that if you believe Psalm 139, he's saying that there in your mother's body God formed you and shaped you and gave you some capacities that would enable you to live. He gave you a capacity for sight and so you begin to develop eyes the pupil and the iris and the retina, marvelous, these marvelous instruments. You develop the capacity for hearing and so the ear began to be formed on your little old head. I heard somebody say the other day that he read that a man was saved, an agnostic was saved one day while he was just loving his little daughter, baby daughter, and was kind of fondling her ear and he just looked and began to be awed by the intricacy of that that very thing that sticks out a long way on mine. My granddaddy used to say I look like a taxi coming down the road with both doors open. My ears stick out so. <laughs> we, begin to, we, we begin to develop capacities for hearing and so we got ears and we got capacities for walking and so we begin to grow feet and legs and we begin to have capacity for feeling and so there began this development of the heart, of the emotion. And all of these capacities were being developed in the confinement of our mother's body, but they could not be lived out. They could not be fulfilled there. You could get a capacity for sight, but you couldn't see there. You could develop a capacity for hearing, but you couldn't hear there. You could get a capacity for walking, but you couldn't walk there. There had to be a birth in order for these capacities to be realized in reality. And so then came the great trauma of, re, of disruption called birth. But from the womb, birth looked like death. It looked like cessation. It looked like consummation. It looked like separation. But in that great trauma of disruption, a person was brought out into a place where the capacities could be realized. Just think what we can do here that we couldn't do in the womb of our mother. We can see, we can hear, we can walk, we can work, we can love. Now, from the perspective of the grave, death looks like death. 
cessation, consummation, separation. But from the perspective of God, it looks like birth. For you're developing capacities here on earth that you have to have heaven in order to fulfill, to, to know, to experience, to enjoy. Now, I don't understand all there is to understand about the rewards of heaven. When that verse, Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven, I don't understand all of that. But I believe this, that we, be, we develop by the miracle of the new birth and the power of the Holy Spirit, we develop on earth capacities that we will only enjoy in heaven. And the more we know of God, the more we walk with God, and the more we surrender to the control of the Holy Spirit as He shapes and forms our life, yea, even through tragedies and problems and difficulties, we're just developing capacities. Bildheimer says in his book, uh, Destined for the Throne, we're just developing for that greater place. There has to be death for the great drama of creation to roll on. God's not through with us yet. And so we pass through this valley of death in order to go from where I am developing capacities to there where I can enjoy them and experience them. I won't miss out on that, do you? And it's really not cessation or consummation. We don't even really believe in the immortality of the soul. We believe in the, con the continuity, the continuation of the personality. And the Bible says that he that hath begun a good work in you will continue to perform it to the day of redemption. Now I want to remind you again of that illustration of the man who was a great whittler who made those things out of wood, who whittled those little objects out of wood. And he sitting by that potbelly stove and he'd just take one and after he'd finished it and throw it in fire and burn it up. The guy said, well, why don't you sell those? Why don't you sell those things? They're beautiful. He said, nobody would care about them. Nobody wants these, would, would, would want these. And so he'd finish one, he'd throw it in the fire, let it burn up. That's not like God. God's not like that. That man was, didn't know the value of his creation. God does. That man was careless about his creation. God is not. God is working out in your life those things that he wants you to enjoy in heaven, even on earth and especially there. So that physical birth begins with the miracle of the empty womb. Spiritual life continues with the miracle of the empty tomb. Now the important thing then this morning is what am I doing with this life? If someday, you know, the, the, the final bell is sounded and the, and the curtain is drawn and I just, I'm transferred to somewhere else, and, and what I have there is dependent upon what I do here, what am I doing with this life? That's a big question, an important one. I heard about this professor in, in uh, Florida who taught a class on, on the theories of death, uh, physiological, etc. And in the end of his class, this is what he asked them to do. He asked each one of them to write out his own obituary. That'll bless you. I mean, you're going to write out, let somebody read what your life was all about. 
Now, if you'll hang right in here, I want to wind this thing up with this. In light of that, it seems like that some of us are making some very serious mistakes. One of them is that for many of us who are Christians, rather than really becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, many of us are just becoming the products of our church doctrine. I mean, this is kind of our idea. You know, tell me what I'm supposed to believe and I'll believe it. Tell me what I'm supposed to say and I'll say it. Tell me how I'm supposed to live and I'll live it. And there are some people who have the label of Christ, Christianity, to their name, who are just doing their best to do everything the church wants them to do. And they've never learned how to walk with God. They've never, they never know what it means to fellowship with the Spirit. And they've never learned how to fellowship with God. And they're going to live their whole life believing everything the church has taught them and doing the best they can to do what the church has told them and yet never really know Jesus Christ. I think there's a second thing. And by, by the way, you read this account, these accounts in the Gospels, and you'll discover that Jesus wasn't so much concerned that the people understand the doctrine he taught. What he was concerned about was that they were his disciples, that they walked with him, prayed with him, lived with him, loved him, believed him, committed, were committed to him. And I know some folks, I think I know some folks who know everything they can know about church doctrine that don't know one five-minute period of fellowship with Christ. Second, I think some of us are pretty careless about the way we live our Christian faith. Now, if we're developing these capacities, if we're producing or creating or living these capacities that, that exist beyond the grave, why are we so careless about them? Why don't we love one another? I mean, we talk about, boy, I'd be glad to see Jesus, and we don't even, we don't even pray to him. And we talk about loving each other in fellowship, and, and, and we have problems with one another in fellowship. Why, why is that? Why, how, how are we going to survive in the life beyond if we can't live that out on earth? Bill Tanner told about the, the gunner on the on the uh, flotilla, one of these large floating uh, ships. They got into battle. This man was careless. This, this gunner was careless. He didn't have his gun anchored. And so as the, as the, as the ship, the sailing vessel, began to uh, pitch and yaw, whatever it's called, that, that big gun broke loose and just ground five people up, killed them, rolling across the deck. The man realized what he'd done, and he... He stood there facing that gigantic cannon as it began to roll back toward him. He took a crowbar in his hand and faced it like a, like a matador facing a bull. And as the ship pitched and that big cannon started rolling back toward him, he stood right there and faced it. Just as it got right to him, he jumped to the side, jammed the crowbar in the spokes of the wheels, turned the big cannon over, made it immobile. 
The head gunner went to the captain and said, what are we going to do about this man? He said, first decorate him for his courage, then shoot him for his carelessness. Ladies and gentlemen, when you and I became a Christian, we assumed the greatest responsibility in life. We assumed personal holiness. We assumed the name of Christ. We assumed the character of Jesus. We not only asked Jesus into our heart, we, asked, we accepted all He believes and stands for and His life, His holiness and His character. And some of us are prostituting that commitment. We're careless the way we live. I think there's a third danger, and that is that some of us are keeping Jesus to ourselves. Now, I don't understand all there is to understand about these last few days in the life of Jesus, but I know what he was doing from chapter 11 on. He was helping these disciples know how to take what they knew of him and pass it on. Are you doing that? And then let me say one word to the unsaved man that sits in this audience this morning. You're gambling a, a gamble of pretty high stakes, my friend. Now there are some, perhaps, if you believe these accounts in Raymond Moody's book, who might get beyond death's door and come back. But not all of us will. A month ago I buried a man, this and I'm through. A man who, who had a total defiance of God. He had a rejection that was a vehement rejection of Christ. He hated preachers. So when I went out to the hospital to meet him, to visit him, I didn't even tell him who I was. I just went as a friend. And I listened to his language and I just loved him. I went every day. Finally one day he, he, he couldn't figure me all out and so he said, who in the four letter word are you? And I said, I'm Gerald Tidwell, I'm pastor of First Baptist Church. He said, oh, the four letter word you are, <laughs> bleep you are. And we developed a friendship in that room that day that grew to be one of the closest relationships I have ever had with any man. And one day I went out to see him in the hospital. He'd been in and out of the hospital several times. I went out there and he was, he was lying in his bed and he said this to me. He said, I want you to tell me what happened to me. He said, I, I was brought in the other night to the intensive care unit and I put upstairs. And he said, I don't remember anything that happened to me. He said, I remember just landing out on this desert. He said, I hit this desert hard. He said, the dust flew. He said, all around me, all I could see was barrenness and huge rocks. And he said, I was alone and frightened. And he said, about that time I saw this huge creature. He said, my four letter word, my, he said, my, his, his feet were that big and he was coming toward me. And just before he got to me, he said, I woke up in the intensive care unit of Bryan Memorial Hospital. He said, what in the world's happening to me? I said, I don't have the slightest idea what's happening to you. But I have a feeling, John Gibson, that God was giving you one last chance to get ready to die. 
And I said, now I'm going to tell you how do you do that. Are you ready to listen? He said, I sure am. I said, all right, I'm going to, I got my New Testament. And I read him the scripture, how to be saved, how to get ready for life beyond. And I said, okay, you ready to pray the sinner's prayer and be saved? He said, I sure am. And he accepted Christ right there in his bed. About two months later, we took him into that baptistry, Dr. Ingalls. We got him to be here because we had to literally carry him up those steps there. And two or three of us went down, put him in the water, and was, he was baptized six weeks ago, I guess, or a month ago. He went away to be with God. Now, my point is that for every man there is an appointment with death it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And what you do today, if you're separated from God, if you're lost, might be the difference between whether you spend an eternity in, with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. And that's a pretty big gamble to take. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the truth that there is life beyond. And I thank you for the hope that is in Christ who is our source and fulfillment of life. And I pray that the unbeliever this morning would confess his faith in Jesus Christ to be saved both for today and for tomorrow. And for those of us who are Christians who live this life out, who are careless about our commitment and our discipleship, forgive us. Careless about our evangelism, forgive us. Help us to realize that while we walk on this earth, we have a supreme obligation and responsibility to our commitment. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now we have three invitations. Bill will lead our choir. The first invitation is for you to come declare your faith in Jesus Christ. You remember what I told the children? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you get to heaven, if you get to God, it'll only be through Jesus. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus and Jesus only? I'm not asking about church membership. asking about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Come this morning. Maybe in Bible school you expressed a desire to be saved. You come right on the first verse and lead us, young boys and girls. Second invitation is for you who are careless about your Christian life. You want to rededicate yourself to Christ, to share Him with others, to live for God while you walk this earth in a greater way and a deeper commitment. Or perhaps you need to join the church. You're a member somewhere else and you want to be a part of this fellowship. These are our invitations. We invite you to come on the very first word. Let's stand and sing.